If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from shipfitter third class James Wire. In this final part of his interview, Wire describes the chaos of serving on the USS Missouri during the invasion of Iwo Jima and the Battle of Okinawa. I was on the USS Missouri uh, when I was in the invasion of Iwo Jima. We uh, fired at the... uh, at the guns, they were in the hills. They'd come out on railroad tracks. The doors would open, the gun would come out and fire at us and go back. Uh, I think there was around 80, 80 ships, and we were just one of them, uh, besides the Missouri and some aircraft carriers and LSTs and LSDs and so forth. They were, they were all around Iwo Jima. But the worst part was that hill, uh, Sarabati, was the highest point on Iwo Jima. And they had a, a nest of Japanese all over the place. Uh, they must have had uh, over a dozen caves with large, long-range guns that could fire at ships and do damage. They were firing back at us, and we saw splashes in the water but uh, evidently they didn't get our range because they were in such a hurry to get out and withdraw the guns. They'd come out, fire a couple of shots, and pull them back inside. And then close the door, and it looked like just foliage. They had foliage all over the gates, and you couldn't see them after that. Even with the glass that brings it up close, you couldn't see where the guns had been. They were that camouflaged. Uh, through the glasses, you can see about two or three of them are working the guns. There was about three men on each gun, and then about four or five men were loading them and pushing the powder and the shells up uh, in the guns. You could look at them through the long glass from the bridge and see them uh, firing the guns and loading them, and, and then uh, they'd pull them back inside. Close the door, and it looked like the hill again. It looked like a plain hill. That was that was their camouflage. They had very good camouflage. Uh, the beach, uh, well, it was pretty bloody. I looked at the beach, and, and I got kind of sick because they were just mowing the men down like uh, like you'd uh, cut grass. Every time they'd run across the beach and uh, they'd mow them down and uh, the Marines that were smart, they'd uh, throw themselves behind a little sand dune or something and level the rifles and fire back 
at the machine guns that were covering the beach. Uh, they were firing from about 500 feet above the beach, and uh, the Marines had to run that gauntlet there with the bullets kicking up sand all around them and in the water. They were bullets splashing in the water as the Marines tried to land. And uh, the first waves that went in were just just cut down like you'd mow grass. They came, uh, uh, oh, they must have been 100 uh, landing ships all around the beach. And as they ran across the sand, the Japanese had the machine guns, heavy machine guns, firing down. And they were just mowing them down until they could establish uh, mortars and so forth and fire back. And then they'd wipe out this Japanese uh, machine gun nests that were about 500 feet up the, up the hill. They had the high ground, and it was very, very hard to land there. They had a very difficult time. It was sickening even just to look at, through the glass and see your men dying and so forth on the beach. And uh, you could see the paramedics even with a little a Red Cross on their little uh, pack. They'd run to the Marines that were still uh, just wounded. And it was a, a real bad at... at uh, Iwo Jima was, was the worst that I've ever seen. It was even worse than Tarawa. The Missouri uh, was uh, what they call covering fire. They didn't, the Marines would radio back to the ship. The ship would fire over their heads. And uh, at uh, Mount Sarabachi was the highest point. They fire over the Marines' heads to knock out those big guns because the big guns were aimed right down towards the beach. Then they stopped firing at the ships and started firing at the beach at the landing ships. And that was, that was horrible. Uh, so we fired as much as we can. We, we fired a lot of shells. Uh, the Missouri fired, uh, I think, over 100 rounds of big 16-inch guns. We let them have it. All the time they ask us to, to spot, the uh, planes would spot where they needed it, and they fire over the Marines' head. And then if, as long as they take the hill, they fire a little higher and a little higher until they finally got all those railroad guns knocked out. And the Marines that was right on the uh, ground would radio back exactly the coordinates for, for the, where the, those guns were. And even though they were camouflaged, we fired 16 inch shells, pretty soon we'd see a, their ammunition go up. And big uh, black smoke would go up. We'd know we'd hit a ammunition dump and hit their guns and their ammunition in the, inside the cave. The Missouri was there for the entire battle. And and we were we were doing a cover fire until islands uh, was taken. They wanted the Iwo Jima because they had about a five thousand foot runway built. The Japanese had built it uh, by hand, and it would was a, a good uh, 
between uh, Guam, where the big B-29s came to, uh, to bomb Japan. It was about halfway there, and all the uh, bombers that were, would lose a motor or two, uh, were, they were ditching in the ocean. And if we had Iwo Jima, they started landing on Iwo Jima, all the crippled B-29s. And uh, each plane had about 13 men on it, so they saved a lot of men that way, of airmen and pilots were saved. Some of them uh, even crash-landed where the wheels were shot away uh, by the Japanese. Why, they, they would uh, land on this one runway. It only had one runway, and it, of course it were on the length of, or almost the length of the island of Iwo Jima. And that's why they, it was so important to get that uh, island because the Japanese were using it to attack our fleet. They were using that airfield to attack our fleet. So we had to, to take it, and they used it for uh, B-29 emergency landings. They landed several B-29s on there after it was taken. And that, the, while the war was still going on, uh, we circled the island constantly to help out with covering fire because uh, after they took the hill, they still had to go to the other end of the island, and uh, the Japanese were pretty thick on there. They, they had, uh, I think, 3,500 soldiers uh, uh, pledged to fight to the death on Iwo Jima because that was Japanese island and it was uh, close to the mainland. It's uh, partway between Guam and Japan. So they didn't want to lose it. It was pretty heavily fortified and uh, uh, it was heavily manned by uh, the Japanese uh, soldiers. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available 
wherever you get your podcasts. When we went in to uh, bombard Okinawa, we did the same thing we did at Iwo Jima. We bombarded all the uh, coastal guns. They had coastal guns on Okinawa. And we fired. Uh, we got in as close as we could. Our range was 20 miles with our 16-inch guns. With accuracy, was 20 miles. So we stayed about 15 miles out. Well, the Japanese... They were thick with the air, so uh, they ha had control of the air to start with. And they sent, uh, uh, I think it was over a 1,000 planes with uh, kamikazes. They fastened the bomb on and uh, sent the young pilots. So some of them are only 21, 22, uh, I guess as low as 19. They had to uh, hold their funerals send them out in the planes, teach them to fly the planes and to dive and so forth. And they dived into ships. I saw uh, one cruiser was hit right next to us and sunk by two airplanes, hit it with the bombs still aboard the planes. And they dove right in like that and made a, a hole right down through the ship and hit vital parts. And the ships uh, uh, tore a big hole in them, and, and they sank uh, right away. Uh, this cruiser sank right away. It must have been within 30 minutes of the time they hit it. Uh, the men were in the water, and uh, we uh, uh, sent over boats to pick them up. We helped pick up, uh, save all the men that we could because there was a lot of sharks around in the water and they would they were hungry and they they attacked a lot of men that were in there with life preservers on life jackets on so we saved as many as we could and then uh, they attacked us with suicide planes on the Missouri and they sent out 13 planes and the Missouri knocked down 12 of them and one plane got us that didn't do much damage. It just hit a gun uh, tub on the uh, side of the ship, uh, on the deck of the ship, came in aft and disintegrated. When it hit the gun shield, and one of the little uh, uh, guns they used to strafe us with uh, got caught in the wing from the wing and, and uh, went through the barrel uh, the barrel of uh, one of the 40-millimeter guns. And uh, I was uh, damage control, so I helped pick up the pieces of the plane and the pilot. And the pilot was cut in half right here. I guess he stood up or something. Anyhow, he was cut in half. And they took him down to sick bay. Of course, it didn't do any good. But... Uh, it was it was a mess, and I I got there about three minutes after the plane hit. They called for the uh, damage control, so 
we were out there. Some of the wings and so forth didn't, uh, jammed the gun, wouldn't turn around. So we lifted the wing off and the parts of the plane. We got those free of the guns, the 40 millimeter. We had quads, that means four guns, uh, 40 millimeters. So we had to free those up first and get the uh, debris off the deck. And it, uh, it didn't kill any of our gun crew, and yet they were all at their battle stations. They were lucky they had a, about a half-inch armor shield that protected them, that the plane smashed against and disintegrated. I think we counted uh, 100 planes at one time was sent down there to attack the fleet. We had, uh, we had around uh, uh, 400 ships, and the Missouri was just one of those ships. They had uh, various other ships and heavy cruisers, and the destroyers, they were the thin, little thin, fast uh, ships, and they were, they were firing at those planes. As they were trying to knock them down before they uh, hit the ships, and they, uh, they uh, splashed most of those planes. Only, uh, I'd say about uh, eight out of 100 hit the ships. But if two planes hit the same cruiser, then it sank. Uh, we were, we were uh, uh, firing at those planes too. We had all our guns manned. We were had all, they fired at one side of the, uh, where the planes were, and then we'd circle around and, and fire from the other side so that we could uh, train our uh, guns that were on each side, give them a chance to, to shoot at those planes and knock them down. During the war, I saw the Franklin get hit by uh, two planes, dove right straight into the Franklin. And I thought the Franklin would sink, but it was set on fire from stem to stern. And they thought the Franklin was lost, but they fought the Franklin fire because uh, the, the firefighters on there were good, well-trained, and they fought the gasoline fires and so forth that were started on the hangar deck and on the top side, and they saved the Franklin. It was just a burnt-out hull from the, on top side, but it was still the motors were okay, and they they brought it back, and they lost uh, they lost a lot of men on the Franklin. I don't know how many, but it was ran into the hundreds that they'd lost from those fires and being bombed, or the or uh, the planes diving into them. All I saw was uh, kamikaze planes, and just as sure as they'd fly over. They'd go into a dive, a steep dive, and they didn't intend to pull out. And a lot of them, uh, we'd fire and throw them off course and set them on fire, and they'd land maybe 30 feet from the ships. I saw planes straddle a ship. Uh, one went here and one went there because we'd knocked it down. 
and uh, we we helped knock down a lot of them. And uh, the little uh, tin cans were real good because they were maneuvering at high speed around, and they could fire at those ships, and, and the ships, the planes didn't hit them very often because they were fast and could maneuver faster than the Missouri was 888 feet long. You can't can't hardly hide one of those big ships with 888 feet long. It's what, about what, three football fields or something uh, long. They were relentless. They were from dawn to dusk. And and even at night, they had kamikazes. That's when you worried, because we had to get in close to to bombard the beach, and uh, we were about 15 miles out. The kamikazes would come out there, and uh, after a while, we had so many guns going that they left us alone. They left the Missouri alone, and uh, Wisconsin was there, and New Jersey. Uh, were all battleships, and they were armed to the teeth with quad 40s, the, those 40 millimeters. The Japanese were afraid of those because they can reach about uh, 2,000 feet or almost a mile high and knock a plane down. They fire a shell about a foot long at a plane, and it, they had pretty good range. Some planes came in and knocked some of the uh, uh, kamikazes down in the water. I couldn't count how many planes went into the water and that didn't hit the ships. But uh, Japan sent all the planes that they had, I think, left. They uh, put bombs on them, fastened bombs on them, and they were to dive into a ship, not drop the bombs, they might miss, but just dive head first into the, any ship they could find. And they figured if they could get a ship with, say, four or five planes, if two of them got through and sunk the ship like it sunk that cruiser that I saw sink, that it was paying off for the Japanese. Uh, that was a last-ditch stand. Okinawa was part of the Japanese islands. Uh, it's itself, like Honshu and so forth, was right above it. So Okinawa was, was right uh, right a part of Japan itself. See, it's part of the main islands. So they wanted to keep Okinawa if they could. So they drained off most of their air force into uh, suicide planes. At night, they would bombard us. Uh, they'd, they'd send over a couple of planes every night so that uh, we would fire at them and they could tell where the ships were. From the, from the fire. So after a while, they sent over a couple of planes and we maintained a darkened ship. Had no lights on the top side at all. And uh, all our communications were done by radio and not the uh, little uh, signal light like between ships. Uh, so after a while, they stopped shooting at a couple of planes, just let them go over, and the planes couldn't find anybody, and they went back or ran out of gas or did something. They say they was low on gas. They give them enough gas to get out there and not enough to get back. So they had to ditch the plane in the water or hit a ship as best they could.
Well, aboard ship, I, I saw uh, this one cruiser sunk about five miles from us, and that was pretty close. Uh, uh, two planes dived right into it at the same time. Two, two kamikazes hit it, and one of them hit forward. I guess they hit the ammunition uh, lockers and magazines, and just a great big pall of flame went up, you know, and the other one uh, was a small flame hit in the back and tried to, they hit him from both both ends. And uh, the, the cruiser sank uh, within uh, just a few minutes. They didn't have much time to get off, but uh, they got most of the men off and we picked up a lot of them because of the sharks. The sharks was was attracted by men falling in the water, jumping in the water, so forth. And uh, um, some of the uh, some of the boats we sent riflemen out to shoot the sharks in the water to keep them from getting the guys that had to abandon the ship. They'd shoot at sharks around them so that. They wouldn't attack the men. We had uh, riflemen there, marksmen that shot in, in the water and shot sharks in the water. And, uh, sometimes you see blood come to the surface of a of a shark. Sometimes they would turn belly up and so forth. But it was it was it was real bad because uh, a cruiser has around uh, uh, I think eleven or twelve hundred men. And they all had to get off, but they got most of them off. That one ship that I saw sink. I didn't see any suicide boats at Okinawa. We kept moving, and and of course, and trying to cover the beach, and and bombard the beach as best we could. And I understand they told uh, the Japanese on the Okinawa that if we captured them, that we cut off their hands or would torture them until they died. So some of them, you could look through the field glass and see them about 14 miles away. We kept out about 14 or 15 miles for within gun range. And uh, finally, at the lower end of the island, I saw what looked like about 500 Japanese troops come to this cliff and they all just jumped over and killed themselves rather than surrender. And I saw that. And we were, we were about 14 or 12 or 14 miles away, but you could see the little figures jumping over but through the long glass. You could see them uh, jumping off of this cliff, killing themselves rather than surrender. Because the Marines had them surrounded, and the Army, they had them surrounded. Uh, and they forced them to the end of the island, and over they went, off the cliff. There must have been about 500 of them. It looked like an awful lot of them. They were just heading for the cliff, and I guess uh, I didn't see any rifles, so I guess they had fired their rifles so they run out of ammunition or something, and they just ran and jumped. Some of them had their canteens on them. And, and uh, 
their hats and so forth. The uh, suicide trucks were uh, uh, little, uh, uh, small Japanese trucks, looked like about one ton, and uh, they'd have a couple of soldiers in the back with with whatever they could get, ammunition or bombs or whatever they could, and they'd run and attack uh, Marine positions and Army positions. And I understand they killed the Army general as in charge of the Army in Okinawa. He was uh, killed there. Uh, I don't know where they got him by a suicide truck or what, but they were using those trucks. Uh, we saw about—I only saw about three trucks— they ran down and blew up, and then a big explosion, almost like a plane that dropped a bomb. But then the truck disintegrated, and so did the two soldiers in the back that was working the controls. And they set the bomb off and blow themselves up and kill all the Marines they could, especially where they were. the Marines were thickest. That's the only way that they could counterattack the Marines. Actually, when the Marines landed, it looked like they made it to the beach. Uh, they didn't uh, mow them down like they did at uh, Iwo Jima. They let them land. It was a strategy that the Japanese had learned. Uh, let them land and uh, get them all on the beach and then open fire from the cliffs or about, they were about 50 feet high, uh, usually around the Okinawa, and, and they had the high ground there. And they'd fire on the Marines after they had all landed and, and come out of the LSTs and so forth. They landed, and uh, they were uh, regrouping to uh, move forward in. And they thought they had the beach secured, and all at once— they opened up on them from cover. They had a cover. Uh, it looked like the, the Japanese had uh, deserted or, or went away from, from uh, where I was on the ship. We was looking at, at them, and uh, we didn't see anybody there, and the Marines all landed nicely. There was no mowing them down like at Iwo Jima. They landed and let them come ashore in... And, and thousands of Marines came ashore. We watched them and had the shore thick with men and uh, jeeps and, and light tanks and, and personnel carriers and so forth. They let them come ashore. And the LSTs and all that were backing out to get another load from our troop ships. And uh, then the Japanese opened up. But uh, the Marines were pretty good. They stood their ground, and uh, pretty soon they had those guns silenced. It was hard because uh, they were firing blindly at the trees and so forth. The Japanese had uh, behind the trees and think they had all the guns. Okinawa was one of the hardest places to take. It took longer than Iwo Jima. I think we circled Okinawa, uh, well, around three sides of it, about three weeks 
firing at various places that planes would spot or fire. And, and it was so hard to take Okinawa. The Japanese would retreat and then they'd regroup and come back and, and, uh, they'd pin down the army and, and pin down the Marines, uh, below the cliffs. And they let them all land. And that was, that was kind of their strategy to let them all land and then, uh, mow them down after they got in there. The Marines uh, wondered why there wasn't any people shooting at them when they landed. But then they cut loose with everything they had. And we were out there with planes that say elevation 50 feet. Let them have it, you know. So we were firing over the heads of the Marines. And I don't know how the Marines felt to hear the 16-inch shells going overhead, but they sound like a freight train. I've heard... Heard them. In fact, I've been out on deck when they were firing, and it's it's quite a concussion. It's a really a quite a concussion. We had some uh, seaplanes. We had two seaplanes, and then the Air Force uh, spotted for us there at the last because uh, we kept our planes aboard uh, for uh, close in. If we were attacked at close in, and they were seaplanes and they were slow. They were only 350 miles an hour, which is slow in comparison with uh, some of the B-29s that do around 500 miles an hour or, something, or 450, something like that. Uh, they were slow, just a little over 300 miles an hour. And uh, they were getting shot up pretty well. Our planes were. We had a lot of patches on the floats of the planes. That was SF3 James Wire. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.